Hey all, I'm Lewis Waller and you're listening to the Then and Now podcast. This week's episode is The Flesh of Modernity. I look at the surprising and sometimes dark history of public health interventions from the early sanitary reformers of the 19th century through to the Nazis and eugenics. I hope you enjoy. Thou cannot ascend these steps, die on that marble where thou art. Thy flesh, near cousin to the common dust, will parch for lack of nutriment, thy bones will wither in few years, and vanish so that not the quickest eye could find a grain of what thou now art on that pavement cold. The sands of thy short life are spent this hour, and no hand in the universe can turn thy hourglass. If these gummed leaves be burnt here, thou canst mount up these immortal steps. It's been a long ride, but they are almost there now. And these are the fields where they will be working. They have heard the crops are good there, that there will be a lot of work and a chance to make some money. But these workers know that to make money in this kind of work, they have to stay healthy and well. To lose a day's work because they're sick means the loss of a day's pay that is gone for good and can never be made up. What does it mean for a body, flesh and bones, to be politicised? For the rhythm of heartbeats, the density of muscles and the flow of arteries to be moulded and shaped by power? What's the best way to rank citizens on a scale, to make the child's body still, obedient, but strong? How far can we go in engineering modern utopian bodies Is it possible to forge the iron of the national body through recommendations, or if not, by force? Throughout the 19th century, bodies emigrated in droves from the country to the city. Their stomachs were hungry for food for work. They crowded flesh on flesh into slums. Little Ireland in Manchester had two toilets between 250. Five or more often slept in one bed. Cesspools and dunghills were everywhere. At the same time, factory owners needed these bodies to be productive, energetic, malleable. As the hungry poured from the country to the city, sanitation became a political issue. A parliamentary group known as the Philosophic Radicals became dominant in British parliamentary life. Inspired by the utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, they looked to improve society by scientific principles, to build the greatest good for the greatest number. 
Bodies had to work, but be healthy. Profit, though, was key. Industrialised cities like Manchester became the target of the first widespread public health campaigns. The philosophical radicals and public reformers like Edwin Chadwick studied the disease and squalor of the slums and soon found what they expected, that poverty and disease were correlated. The poor body was a diseased one. Chadwick knew that statistical information was key to improving the health of the nation. He wanted a system of national data collection to trace problems like the causes of disease, its locations, its degrees of severity, the dangers of different occupations, the progress of the population, and what people thought about disease, deaths by negligence, and deaths that were unnecessary. They argued that the expenditures necessary to the adoption and maintenance of measures of prevention would ultimately amount to less than the cost of the disease now constantly engendered. The 1846 Nuisance Removal Act gave local authorities the power to deal with cesspools, privies, dung and refuse in the streets, filth and squalor, the clean and the unclean, the highlighting on maps of particular spots, particular suspects particular buildings that caused trouble. In 1848, a general board of health was set up to empower local authorities to take further action on sanitation. This led to sewer and water pipes being laid en masse for the first time. The first early health reformers made subtle improvements to the cleanliness of the body, but they also unearthed a modern problem. The general board of health became increasingly unpopular, It centralised decision-making and took power from local government. In 1854, Chadwick was removed and the Times wrote that Mr Chadwick and Dr Southwood Smith have been deposed and we prefer to take our chance with cholera and the rest than be bullied into health. The early days of public health regulation quickly highlighted a central problem. Whose ideals are the healthy body based on? And to what extent should bodies be made docile, be forced to comply with regulation? Once statistical data is collected, you create something new. A quantitative population with an average, a normal citizen. And the normal, of course, implies there are problems. The abnormal. concept of a medical police became popular across Europe. In the 18th century, the English politician William Blackstone had argued that by the public police and economy, I mean the due regulation and domestic order of the kingdom, whereby the individuals of the state, like members of a well-governed family, are bound to conform their general behaviour to the rules of propriety, good neighbourhood, and good manners, and to be decent, industrious, and inoffensive in their respective stations. 
Industriousness, prosperity and profit were the ideals to be emulated. The abnormal were always defined as the poor, the immigrant, the other, a problem to be stamped out. For centuries it has been well known that epidemic diseases follow the lines of commerce and travel. The introduction of yellow fever, smallpox, cholera and other diseases from foreign countries by ship was by no means uncommon. In Australia, for example, when a smallpox epidemic broke out in 1881, authorities and the press blamed the outbreak on Chinese immigrants. The Daily Telegraph wrote that they had an inordinate, unseemly and perverse fondness for dirt and daily defiance of sanitary laws. Homes were boarded up, residents evicted, clothes and furniture burnt, people spied on and reported by their neighbours. In the end, the Chinese immigrants were forced into compulsory vaccination against their will. One British doctor wrote in 1851 that there is a close affinity between moral depravity and physical degradation. Cholera respects cleanliness, sobriety and decent habits. It seldom intrudes where industry and good morals prevail. Hence, in regard to this dreadful pestilence, man is, in no small degree, the arbiter of his own fate. As a 1916 medical textbook put it, the old public health was concerned with environment, the new is concerned with the individual. And the individual began as a child. A young life emerging, growing, its development a question mark. In our modern world, a child and its vulnerable ego are all too soon placed in the crossfire of conflicting stresses and strains. Reflected at the youngster, the heart surface of his adult contact. In 1919's The Nervous Child, British physician Hector Cameron wrote that The body of the child is moulded and shaped by the environment in which he grows. Pure air, a rational diet and free movement give strength and symmetry to every part. The child was becoming a problem to be solved. The chief medical officer warned in a report that parents should look out for children that have a tendency to quarrel to make violent friendships, to engender bitter dislikes, to attend unduly to bodily functions, to night terrors, to unreasonable fears, grief, introspection and self-examination, and to separation from family and friends. The Royal Society of Medicine discussed phenomena like the difficult child, the neurotic child, the maladjusted child, the delicate child and the solitary child. The ideal child was obedient, hardworking, quiet, strong, and importantly, subject to routine. Here on the playground, children are engaging in their own choice of activity, moving as they will and enjoying their own movement pattern. 
Because movement is so natural to children, teachers often overlook the importance of teaching a sound basis for more efficient and expressive movement patterns. In 1909, the Board of Education's Syllabus of Physical Training for Schools warned that undirected, indiscriminate exercise cannot take the place of a scientific system of physical training. At the same time, Britain's poor performance during the Boer War gave rise to concerns about its national fitness and the degeneration and decline of the nation. British Fabian Sidney Webb argued for building up the nervous and muscular vitality of the race. Robert Baden-Powell founded the Scouts and wrote Scouting for Boys in 1908 to promote strong masculine bodies for the defence of empire. He wrote that manliness is an antidote to physical and psychological deterioration. Scouts should be ready to take the place of those who have gone away to fight and who have fallen at the front. For factory owners, officers and elites, there was one type of body to be feared above all others the tired body. It's going to be rough and rugged training to toughen you up. If you aren't ready for it, you're going to have more than your share of sore muscles, aching feet, poor endurance, exhaustion, strain, and awkwardness. Yes, it can be tough for you if you aren't ready physically. It can be a lot easier for you if you are. And if you are ready, later it may mean the difference between failure and success. Professor of Physiology Sir Thomas Oliver wrote in the Journal of State Medicine in 1914 that so tired is the cry of thousands of men, women and young persons at the close of the working day. How to meet the complaint and to remove its cause are among the problems of the present age. It would seem as if the stress of modern times was becoming too great, and as if the strain of industrial methods through improved machinery was becoming more than human strength can bear. How does one construct, he wondered, a body without fatigue? Having an energetic disposition was not a humanitarian concern, but a commercial one. In 1912, Professor of Physiology Albert Kent was appointed by the Home Office to investigate industrial fatigue so that the attainment of maximum output could be scientifically formulated. During the First World War, the problems of maximum output became acute. The Health of Munition Workers Committee was created by the government to consider and advise on the questions of industrial fatigue. In 1918, the committee continued as the renamed Industrial Fatigue Research Board. The committee's purpose was to consider and advise on questions of industrial fatigue, hours of labour and other matters affecting the personal health and physical efficiency of workers in munitions factories and workshops, revealing how profit and production superseded any humanitarian ideal, the department defined fatigue as the sum of the results of activity which show themselves in a diminished capacity for doing work. The proper study of disease should be to recognise not only that the bodily sensations are a fallacious guide to the true state of fatigue which may be present, and a wholly inadequate measure of it, but also that fatigue in its true meaning advances progressively and must be measurable at any stage by a diminished capacity for work before its signs appear plainly 
or at all, in sensation. As the historian Alan Derrickson has noted, if tired employees could be driven by threats, stimulants, financial incentives, nationalistic appeals, or machine pacing to maintain output through their work shifts, no fatigue existed. The point was to bring fatigue under scientific management. One memorandum warned that if the operatives are left to themselves, they take rests at irregular and often unsuitable times. Hence, it would be much better if the rest pauses were chosen for them. One commentator wrote that the war has caused us to give more attention to fatigue during the past two years than it has received from us during the preceding half century. Another study found that the infamous telegraphist's cramp and miner's nystagmus, a mental illness linked to the dark, cramped conditions of the mine, was the result of neuroses, weaknesses of the mind. Another report from the chief inspector of factories advised that workers should be kept under observation for the first year to see how accident-prone they were. The medical journal The Lancet reported in 1931 that mental hygiene should be utilised as a surveillance tool so that the socially inefficient, the unemployable, the epileptic, the habitual offender, the prostitute, and all others who have not been able to fit themselves harmoniously into the fabric of society could be identified. And the idea of the harmonious fabric of society began to lead to concerns about those that were conspicuously inharmonious. The other. The race which is in a lesser state of development is by far in the majority here. And numerically, of course, they are much stronger. And because also I believe that it is according to God's will that the white race which is in the majority in this country, should be preserved. And also, everything we have done in the last 300 years, built up in the church and in the state, should be preserved and not be swallowed up by an, I wouldn't say inferior race, because it, I don't believe it is an inferior race, but a lesser a, a, a race which is in a lesser state of development, that's all. After Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, many social Darwinists and eugenicists began to see the health of the nation as the basis of all ethics. To ensure national or racial hygiene, the strong and fit must flourish. Using precious resources to improve the position of the poor was a waste of time. As one writer put it, poor housing conditions were the natural environment of an unfit class and the means whereby such a class prepared the way for its own extinction. The International Society for Race Hygiene was established in 1907. Its purpose was to advance scientific, racial and social biology, including racial and social hygiene. Its members were expected to live their lives according to the motives of society. Firstly, by earnest efforts to keep themselves in good condition in body and mind. Secondly, by pledging themselves to ascertain before marriage, according to the directions of the society, whether they are fit for it, and if unfit, either to remain unmarried or to refrain from parenthood. Thirdly, by promoting the individual and racial well-being of the rising generation. 
During the Weimar period of interwar Germany, the belief that hereditary science could improve the social body was popular with groups from politicians to feminists to churches. Couples were encouraged to obtain certificates proving that they were suitable for marriage and didn't have contagious diseases or abuse drugs and alcohol. In 1923, government-financed eugenic medical centres started to appear. Policies that would prevent the unfit from procreating gained substantial backing across the political spectrum, and a bill that legalised sterilisation was being drafted by the Republic the year before Hitler assumed power. But Germany wasn't a special case. These views were popular all across Europe and America. It was only in Germany that they were taken to their dark, extreme conclusion. With pagan pageantry, the district leaders from all over Germany swore personal allegiance to him, hypnotized with the belief that they were members of a master race. Within six months of being in power, the Nazis began to enact compulsory sterilisation for the unfit. The Law for the Prevention of Progeny with Hereditary Diseases was passed in 1933. It deemed that anyone with hereditary diseases may be rendered sterile by surgical means when, according to medical experience, it is highly probable that the offspring of such persons will suffer from severe inherited mental or bodily disorders. Marriage now required a certificate by law proving genetic health and Aryan descent. Abortion was banned. At least 400,000 compulsory sterilizations were carried out during Nazi rule on those with depression, blindness or deafness, alcoholism, epilepsy, feeble-mindedness and much else. 300,000 were killed in what came to be known as Action T4. Doctors were given permission to murder those deemed incurably sick. Hitler wrote that Sparta must be regarded as the first Volkish state. The exposure of the sick, weak, deformed children, in short their destruction, was more decent and in truth a thousand times more humane than the wretched insanity of our day which preserves the most pathological subject and indeed at any price, and yet takes the life of a 100,000 healthy children in consequence of birth control or through abortions, in order subsequently to breed a race of degenerates burdened with illnesses. Leading Nazi Richard Dahr wrote that every available means should be used to achieve the goal that the creative blood in the body of our people, the blood of human beings of the Nordic race, should be preserved and increased, because on this depends the preservation and development of our Germanness, and the pursuit of racial purity in the name of national health and hygiene culminated in the darkest moment of the project of modernity. But it wasn't just in Germany. Modernity is a global pursuit shared by nations across the world. A report for the Committee on Maternal Health in America observed that Germany's eugenics legislation was a great step ahead as a constructive public health measure, 
as a method of preventative medicine and as a contribution to social welfare. And other countries, Sweden, Estonia, Norway, all passed laws similar to the ones the Nazis had earlier on. So what characterises the modern body? If modernity is a project, the modern body is a project too. Driven by a model of the ideal defined by the most powerful, standard by which everyone else is judged. The ideal might be one of purity, productivity, docility, and regardless of whether it's enforced or just encouraged, it pulls and beckons and shapes the body, imposes guilt, anxiety, and strain. The impulse to violate basic liberties for the greater good is a timeless one, and there's a fine line between good public health and the corruption of the power that provides it. So the questions of striking a balance between the traditional body, the modern body, and the postmodern body are questions that will always need watching over. hope you've enjoyed this week's episode if you have please do like share and rate and review then and now wherever you get your podcasts all of this though would not be possible without the generous support of patreon subscribers if you want to help then and now out by pledging a dollar or two towards each new episode go to patreon.com forward slash then and now see you next time